starting this series, um, not starting, st- starting part three of this series, um, I-, I want you to know a little bit about me as we get started this morning, though. Um, I have a tendency, kind of one of just something that how I'm naturally wired, I, I have a tendency to kind of jump very quickly at things, at a project, and to jump in very quickly and to begin the process of just knocking it out and getting it done. That's a tendency I have. And sometimes in that process, I can actually get started too soon. I can get started before I'm actually, before it's really time to get started, and I can kind of move ahead and I can get so far ahead of everything that's going on, I'm out here by myself on my own, and I can find myself in a really kind of bad situation because of that. And then when that happens, I kind of begin spinning my wheels, and I'm not making progress anymore because I've really, I I have to work against that. But I have another tendency too. I have another tendency that uh, I, I sometimes, the project can be so big and it can land in my lap so quickly and that I look around and there are so many details to take care of, so many things to do that I can be overwhelmed by the enormity of the task and I can end up spinning my wheels not accomplishing anything because I feel overwhelmed about the size of the task that needs to be done. So I have a tendency to do one of two things, either to go too quickly and get too far ahead and then I become not productive, or I have a tendency to get overwhelmed in all the details. I was talking to Cole this week. He has a tendency too. He has a tendency, he told me, he has a tendency to wait until everything is perfect where he's guaranteed that he won't fail, and then he tries to act. And so for him, really the same result happens as for me. The the result becomes that he doesn't get anything related to that accomplished because he's waiting for everything to be just right. But for both of us, that's the same thing. We end up, Harley and Cole, our tendency could be, if we're not careful, to end up and we don't make progress. I don't think we're alone in that. Uh, Usually for me, I'm not going to speak for Cole here, for me usually when that begins to happen, the problem I most often find is that I'm listening to the wrong voices in my life. If I get too far ahead and I become unproductive or if I get overwhelmed by the enormity of the task, it usually happens when I listen to the wrong voices. This series is about trying to help us make progress in life, and really by God's design, He designed it for us to twist our lives together with some specific other lives that can help us become more productive, become more of what God wants us to be. And today specifically, if I twist my life with the correct voices, those voices are going to help me move forward and they're going to help me gain progress in my life, in and around my life. The voices we listen to in our lives have a lot of power. They really do. Let me word it this way. It's the ones we choose to listen to. And if we choose to listen to the wrong voice, that wrong voice is going to lead us straight towards failure. Now, here's what happens for me, especially if I listen to my 
own voice. So often in my life, I'm going to be honest, my own voice so often ends up being the wrong voice. If I, you should, if you could just hear the things that I say to myself, the way I just run myself down, the way I just kind of dig myself into a hole myself, so often in my life, my voice is the wrong voice in my life. I do so much damage to myself by listening to the things that I say to myself. But you know what? The wrong voice can also be another person in my life. It can be another person. I could be listening to another person's voice, and that voice could also be the wrong voice. I find this in life. My greatest regrets in my life have happened with other people who wanted to do the same thing. I was doing, and we did, and it became one of the greatest regrets of my life. So someone else's voice can be wrong too. Uh, that may be the case for you. Sometimes we have uh, the wrong person come into our life at what would be the right time, <laughs> and in other words, the right time for a giant storm. Something's going on in our life, something's upside down in our life, something's not right, that maybe you're not married to, you come into contact with them, the wrong person, at the right time for a perfect storm, and then your life just goes off the rails with that other person. So that other voice could be a very dangerous voice. Maybe it's not that relationship, maybe you're single. Maybe you're single and you think it's the right person, but maybe you're going about the relationship possibly in the wrong way. Maybe outside of the way God has designed relationship to work and the way he wants your relationship to work. And so, but together you're saying the same things. You think it's the right person, but you're going about it the wrong way. And that can be, in the end, the wrong voice. Or maybe it's that wrong voice that offers you for the first time meth. And maybe you didn't stumble upon it on your own. Maybe it was offered to you by somebody, but maybe that one invitation of that drug, maybe that's where it all started. And then from there, slowly and then quickly, your life took a major turn and it has never been the same since because of that. That was the wrong voice. But you know what? The right voice in our lives can also be very, very powerful. Because the right voice in our life is going to move us closer to and toward a growing relationship with Jesus. So this series is all about twisting our lives together. That's where we get this whole rope motif. Twisting our lives together with another life, another person who is chasing after Jesus. And that's where we get the name of the series, Twisted. Stronger Together by Design. We get that out of uh, Ecclesiastes. It's some wisdom out of the Old Covenant. Here's what it says in verse 9. It says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. Their lives twisted together, two better than one. Verse 10, if one falls, the other one can reach out and help. But he says, someone who falls by themselves, oh man, he says, they're, if they're alone, they're in real trouble. 
In other words, one is not as strong. But when you take one and one and one and twist those together, you get something strong like this. Verse 12, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer, and three are even better. He says here, a triple braided cord is not easily broken. That's where we get the name for this series, the title for this series. That's what this is all about, twisting our lives together. So in week number two, that was last week, we talked about how Barnabas and Paul were twisted together. Barnabas was a voice of encouragement, and we need that voice of encouragement twisted into our lives. Week number one, two weeks ago, we talked about this, how Paul had his life twisted together with Timothy's life, and Paul was the voice of a coach, how Timothy needed that coach, and that's what we talked about, how we need to twist into our lives the voice of a coach, someone who's following Jesus further down the road than we are. They're chasing after him, and they can look back to our lives and help us if we will twist our lives with the voice of that coach. And today, we're kind of picking up this same thing still with Paul again. Now, Paul is with a guy named Silas today, and they are leading a church-starting journey. They're on this journey together. They're leading. Timothy is with them. Now, Timothy is still being coached by Paul, and they're on this journey. There's another guy with them. His name is Luke, and Luke is writing down the record. He is keeping record of everything that's happening, and he eventually writes it all down, led by the Holy Spirit. He writes it all down, and it is what we call the book of Acts, and we're going to be reading a few verses out of that today. So let me catch you up with what's happening in the, the life of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke at this moment. There were some others, but those are the ones named. So Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they have land, they've gone from town to town starting churches, and now they are in a new town called Thessalonica. It becomes famous later. You may have heard about the letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, the church that was meeting in Thessalonica. That's the letter Thessalonians. Okay, Paul wrote that, but this is where that church began. So Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, they are in Thessalonica. In, in this town, there's a Jewish synagogue, and this is where we pick up the story with verse 2. As Paul's custom was, he went to the synagogue service. So Paul shows up with his church planting team, church starting team, and he's at the synagogue service. It says he's there for three Sabbaths in a row. Three weeks in a row, he's at the synagogue. He used the scriptures, so he was teaching as a traveling uh, a rabbi, a traveling speaker here at the moment. He teaches for three Sabbaths in a row. He used the scriptures to reason with the people. Here's what he reasoned with. Verse 3, he explained the prophecies of the old covenant. He explained the prophecies and he proved he proved this, that the Messiah, that's Jesus, must suffer and rise from the dead. So he's explaining how the old covenant tells this is exactly what's going to happen. And then he proved then, and this is exactly what Jesus did. And he said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Now, Paul simply working. He's got his, lives his life twisted together with these other lives, with Silas and Timothy and Luke. 
and they're just simply starting churches wherever they go. Now, we saw in weeks one and two how this starting church business, starting a church business, was really deadly. It was really deadly and very threatening. It was a dangerous thing to do because they were outnumbered. In every town they went to, they were outnumbered by people who wanted them dead. Now, leading this church planting, church starting team is this guy named Paul. Now, Paul, his first name is actually Saul, all right? When we first meet him in the book of Acts, Saul, this guy named Paul, actually hates Christians, and he's killing Christians, actually, when we first meet him, and everybody calls him Saul. That's how he's referred. But later in Acts, everyone begins calling the same guy. They begin calling him Paul. It's not a new name for him. His name was not changed like other people's names have changed in the Bible. His name didn't change. He actually had two names. His name was Saul. His middle name was Paul. We don't know why they began calling him Paul instead of Saul. We just know that's how they began referring to him. But let's think about his first name for just a moment. His name is Saul. Now that's an important name in the life of an Israelite because the very first ancient king, his name was Saul, King Saul. And that's who this Saul, also called Paul, was named after. He was named after King Saul. So I want to take just a few minutes this morning in the middle of this to pause where we are with Paul, who's called Saul, and to jump back many, many, many years to this King Saul. And let's look for a moment at this guy that Paul was named after, King Saul. So early, in, and he was the very first king of Israel. So when, early when he became a king, uh, he raised up an army of 3,000 Israelite men. And that was a decent-sized army for him, especially coming from this nation that had no army. He raised up 3,000 men, and they had, uh, they had this arch enemy. They were, it was the Philistines, the Philistines, the, this whole nation of people that this nation, the Philistines, they hated the Israelites. And they really made life difficult for the Israelites. So Saul raises this 3,000-man army, and he goes off and he fights one small army of the Philistines, and he has a victory, and he wins. Now that sounds great, but the problem is it made the Philistines hate them even more. And now the Philistines bring up the big army, and they raise the big army up, and so the Philistines come up with 3,000, not soldiers, 3,000 chariots. If you've ever seen TV, a chariot versus a man, there's no contest. They raise up, th so they had two men on every chariot, 6,000 men, 3,000 chariots. And then they describe the number of foot soldiers like this. They describe it by saying it was like the grains of sand on a beach. That's how many there were. Now, for years and years and years, the Philistines have brutalized the Israelites. They have just bullied them and beat up on them. 
In fact, the, the Philistines would not allow the Israelites to have any blacksmith. Anything they needed built, they had to go to the Philistines and use their blacksmiths. And the reason they wouldn't allow the Israelites to have a blacksmith is they did not want the Israelites to be able to raise up and to furnish an army with weapons. And it worked. The Israelites only had two weapons in the entire nation of people. They had two swords. That's it. In the entire nation, for even for all of the people in the military, there were only two swords. The king had one. King Saul had a sword, and his son Jonathan had a sword, and that's it. Everyone else in the army, they used a club, or they used a farm implement, a farm tool. That's all they had. That against 3,000 now chariots, 6,000 charioteers, all furnished completely with weapons, and thousands and thousands and thousands of foot soldiers all furnished with armor and with weapons. So the Israelite army now of 3,000 looks quite small, and they feel quite small, and they begin to scatter they began to slip away. They began to leave the army. Now, Saul gets nervous because he sees this enormous army of the Philistines and his is beginning to fall away. Now, he knows there has to be a sacrifice before they can go into battle with the Philistines. He knows this. And he decides that he cannot wait any longer because his army is falling away. That he has to do that sacrifice now, right now, this very moment. And he says, I'll do the sacrifice myself. And that was strictly against God's law. It was forbidden. And Saul knew that. And he said, oh, that's okay. I will do it anyway. I'm, I, I can do this on my own. And in that moment when he did, he absolutely blew it. Because here's what he was saying to his army, and here's what he was saying to God. I can do this on my own. I'm enough without God. We don't need God. And that's a very dangerous voice to listen to. And that's the voice that Saul was listening to. It was his own voice. And yeah, as a matter of fact, God gets upset. He gets angry with Saul. And he promises Saul. He says, Saul, I'm going to take away your kingship. Not today, but it's over with you, buddy. It will not pass down through your bloodline. It will not pass on to your children. I'm going to remove it and take it to another bloodline. That's what's going to happen. And ultimately, that's what God did. But now, he still sees his army falling away. And so Saul counts how many soldiers he has left. And he gets the number, and he has left 600 soldiers. Now, Paul, Saul knows that this is, this is way, way too few. I mean, there's, it's impossible. It's impossible at 3,000, and it's certainly now impossible with 600. And so Saul kind of takes his army, and he goes to the outskirts of this whole area where everybody has been encamped, and he goes to the outskirts a little bit away from the Philistines, out of their sight, and he camps with these 600 soldiers, and Paul pitches his tent. Saul does. I'm sorry. I may do that frequently. I apologize. 
Saul pitches his tent under a pomegranate tree. And that's what happens. He's now from 3,000 soldiers down to 600. They were so afraid. Some of them uh, ran off and just went home. Some of them scattered into the hills and hid in caves and hid among the rocks where the Philistines couldn't find them. And some of them who were actually closer to the Philistines' line actually went over to the Philistines and said, hey, we surrender, we give up, we'll fight for you. And so some of the Israelites were actually now with the Philistines. But here was Saul and his 600 men, scared to death, and he went from, I can do this without God, to now he's saying, God, even if you helped, it can't happen now. Not even with God can this be successful. And so still, now at this other extreme, Saul is still listening to the wrong voice. He's listening to his own voice. At first, he listened to his own voice and he acted without God. And now he's listening to his own voice and he's frozen in fear. That leads us to the first part of our bottom line. Dustin's going to put this on the screen for you. The wrong voice shocks us with a disappointing forfeit. And that's what we see happening in the life of King Saul right now. A very disappointing forfeit. We're going to pick up this story in 1 Samuel uh, in, in chapter 14, verse 2. It says, Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree of Migron. That's where he was, just camping. There we find Saul, just camping, waiting under this tree. And you know what? He doesn't even know exactly what he's waiting for. He's just there spinning his wheels, just waiting, and he doesn't know why. And remember, there are only two swords in all of Israel, in this entire army, two swords. Saul has one, his son Jonathan has the other. Two swords, two sets of armor. Saul has one set of armor, Jonathan has the other. Right before we learn that Saul is just sitting there under the tree waiting for he does not know what, this first verse happens. Let me read it. Verse 1 says this, one day Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, he said, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan didn't, did not tell his father what he was doing. So Jonathan is listening to a different voice. Jonathan is listening really to the voice that's leading him, which is his heavenly father and God's spirit. And he's listening to that voice and he's taking his voice and he's taking the armor bearer's voice and he is becoming stronger. He's twisting his life together with those voices. And so they take that one sword between the two of them and they sneak off quietly. Meanwhile, his dad, King Saul, and the other sword in Israel are both sleeping under a tree near his 600 men. Four simple words at this point separate King Saul from Jonathan. 
Four simple words. And here they are. Jonathan said, come on, let's go. Come on. He said, let's go. While his father was sleeping, afraid, and waiting. You see, the bottom line is this. The wrong voice shocks us with a disappointing forfeit. But then it goes on, and Dustin will put that on the screen. The right voice strengthens us with a come-from-behind upset. If you just advance that, it'll pop up, Dustin. The right voice strengthens us with a come-from-behind upset. Yeah. And that's what we're going to see lived out in the life of Saul, the forfeit, and Jonathan, the come-from-behind upset. So now let's go back to the verse. 1 Samuel chapter 14, now verse 3. No one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. None of the 600 nor King Saul did they know. Verse 6 tells us this. Jonathan speaking, let's go across to the outpost to those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us. In other words, if God wants to, he certainly can. For nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Now whose voice has Jonathan been listening to? Here's what he says in verse 7. This is the armor bearer. He says, okay, all right, Jonathan, do what you think is best. The armor bearer replied, I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. So now we have three voices. We have God's voice leading them. We have Jonathan's voice who says, come on, let's go. And we have the armor bearer's voice who says, right, I'm with you. I'm with you. And here's what Jonathan says, verse 8. All right, then. Okay. All right, then, Jonathan told him, we will cross over and we're going to let them see us. And I'm thinking now, that sounds like a bad idea, Jonathan. Sounds like a very bad idea. Don't you want to sneak up on them? Nope. He says, we're going to let them see us. And here's what he says, verse 9. If they say to us, hey, stay where you are or we're going to kill you, Jonathan says then we'll stop and we're not going to go up to them. Verse 10, but if they say, come on up and fight, then we'll go up. Because that will be the sign, that the Lord's sign, that he will help us defeat them. And here's what happens. Verse 11, when the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, oh, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes because so many had run off and hid into the caves. They're crawling out of their holes. Verse 12, then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson. Armor bearer and he says, come on, climb right behind me. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. And verse 13, so they climbed up using both hands and feet. In other words, they were scaling a cliff 
with one sword between the two. They scaled the cliff. They got up onto it where the outpost, the outpost was up there where they could see what was going on. That's why they were there. And they scaled the cliff. They reached the top. One sword, two men. And here's what happened. The scripture tells us and describes that they get back to back with Jonathan and the sword in front and behind him facing the other direction is the armor bearer with who knows what he has. We're not told. Either a club or some farm implement. Who knows? He may have been swinging his shield. We don't know, but he didn't have a sword, didn't have a weapon. And back to back, they face this outpost of men, and they do battle. And the way it is described, it would be as if something we would see on TV today with two men going up against about 20, 25 men. And they're coming at them from the front and from the back, and Jonathan has them in the front, the armor bearers has them from the back, and they're working their way through this outpost, which took up about a half acre of land. So they're not just standing there, they're back to back moving through this outpost, and they are leaving a half acre field full of bodies. And by the time someone's able to count, there's about 20 Philistine fully armed soldiers who are laying dead. And Jonathan and his armor bearer are still alive. Word begins to spread from outpost to outpost to the main encampment to the field soldiers who are already in place to all the raiding parties that were set up because we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people in a large area spread out and word begins to spread from one outpost to the next and they begin to panic and everyone is terrified they don't know what's happening but they know this it's bad to our bottom line, let me remind you. The wrong voice shocks us with a disappointing forfeit, but the right voice strengthens us with a come from behind upset. Now, let's go back to Saul's tiny little army now. Saul has some lookouts who are watching the Philistine army so that they can give Saul a heads up. And they begin to see, his lookouts begin to see that they're up high at a place where they can see as well. And they begin to see this vast army melting away at the edges in every direction. They're just, it, it, from they're so far out, they see them as a mass and they see they begin to just melt away. They send word back to King Saul. King Saul doesn't know what's happening, so he calls Roll to find out who's here, who's not here. And he discovers that everyone is there in the camp except for Jonathan and his armor bearer. They're gone. And so Paul is put, uh, Saul, King Saul is putting it together. And so King Saul calls his priest in and he begins talking to him about, should we go, should we not? Should we go, should we not? Should we go, should we not? And finally, King Saul, as they're talking, he can hear louder and louder and louder the confusion and the roar in the Philistine camp. It grew so loud that Saul said, I, I don't care what, I, I've got to go do something now. And so he leaves with his tiny little army 
And they go join in the battle. And that's where it begins, or continues for sure. Saul rushes out and joins in the battle. And when they get there to the front lines that they can get to, they, be, they see what's happening. And all this confusion, the Philistines now are actually, they're actually killing each other. They're doing battle with each other. And they, the Philistines are doing all the work at this point now for them. They join in the battle. The Philistines are now killing other Philistines. And, and beyond that, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, who had jumped camp and gone to the Philistines, they started joining in with the Israelites as well. They came back. And, and as the Philistines were running away at the edges, the Israelites who were hiding in the rock caves, they began joining in and chasing after the fleeing Philistines. And the Bible describes it this way. It says this. It says that the Lord saved Israel that day. You see, the wrong voice shocks us with a disappointing forfeit. But the right voice strengthens us with a come-from-behind upset. See, if you were to look at King Saul under the pomegranate tree, you would look at him and you would say, yeah, King Saul, he's in the game. He is ready, even though he only has 600 men, he's ready for war. He's ready for battle. He has all of his armor, and it may even be on. He has all of his armor. He has one of the two swords for all of Israel. He has one of them, and he's ready, and he has his armor. And he's camping there with all of his warriors, and they're ready. But the truth is, he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready for battle. The truth is, Saul, King Saul, was just hiding. Now, let's come back to 2021, the year 2021, the day September the 19th, 2021, today at 11.25. We're here in this room. We call it a worship theater. We have it set up where we're sitting in these rows to give us the opportunity to put more people in, to fill it, to have space for people. And we, times, at times we can convince ourselves that we are in the battle. And we can convince ourselves that we are making a difference by coming into this room and by sitting in these rows and taking part in what we call a worship gathering at Stuttgart Harvest Church and across the state over at Malvern at the Church of Malvern. And we can convince ourselves that we're in the battle, that we're ready, that we're in the war, that we have everything we need. We got our sword, we got our armor, we're ready for battle. But yet when we look around, we find ourselves simply sitting in the rows. And, and if someone on the outside were looking in, they might look at us and they might say, uh-uh, that's just a bunch of bench warmers sitting on those benches, sitting on those rows. They're just bench warmers. And the truth is, sometimes that's the truth. Sometimes we are just bench warmers. Sometimes we are. But I want to give you the truth. Everyone, every single person who submits their life to Jesus and follows him, 
every single person who follows Jesus, he puts them in the battle. He never sets them on the bench. He always puts them in the battle. And so let me describe to you what this should be in here. Not a place for bench warmers who just look like they're preparing for battle and never battle. No, 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 no. That's not what this is in here. Maybe we should think about this as something different. Because if we don't, then we might as well just forfeit. If all we do is come into this room and then leave and go home and say, we did it. We came to church Sunday. We might as well just forfeit. A shocking disappointing forfeit. But if we can come into this room and instead of being bench warmers, if we can come into this room and consider this a pre-battle briefing in here, a pre-battle briefing where we come together in this room to be ready for what we need to do out there in the world then we will leave this room, this pre-battle briefing, and we'll leave and go to work and be in the battle. And please don't misunderstand me. We are not battling against flesh and blood. We're not battling against our neighbors, against our civic leaders, against our senators. We're not battling against a president or the last president or the president before him. We're not battling people. We're battling for the souls and the eternity of God's creation, man. We're battling for them not against them. And if we can consider this our, our pre-battle meeting, then we can leave this room and we can go to work. You see, the wrong voice, if we listen to the wrong voice, it will shock us with a disappointing forfeit. But the right voice strengthens us with a come-from-behind upset. So we will leave this room, this building, and we will go out there and we will do this. We will love people the way Jesus loves people. And how did Jesus love people? Who did he love? Who are the ones we're supposed to love? I'll tell you, it's everyone. Every single person around us. So we will leave this place and we will go love the people that Jesus loved, which is everyone. And I want to promise you this. We do that better together. When my life is twisted with yours and with your life twisted with the person beside you and behind you and in front of you, we do that better together. You see, the right voice is going to strengthen us, and it's going to strengthen us with a come-from-behind upset. And so we will leave this room, and we will go out there to live how Jesus lived. We're going to love who he loved, and we're going to live how Jesus lived. And how did Jesus live? Jesus came to serve. That's why he came. He came. He 
here not to be worshipped as God. He was, and he deserved it, but that's not why he came. He came to give his life to serve so he could die on the cross. He could serve us all the way to an eternal relationship with God. He came to serve. And we're going to leave this room. And we're going to go out there. And we're going to do our best to live how Jesus lived. To serve other people. And I want you to know the truth. We do that better together. We serve other people better together when we twist our lives with the lives of the people in front of you and behind you and beside you. We will live like Jesus lived to serve better together. You see, the right voice strengthens us with a come from behind upset. We're going to love the people he loved. We're going to live how he lived. But there's something else we need to do. We need to leave what Jesus left. What did Jesus leave? He left churches who would go on to start churches, who would go on to start more churches. That's why this church even exists today, because a long time a long time ago, his followers took him seriously when he said, I want you to go out and do that. I want you to go out and make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. And that's what the church is about. And that's what Jesus started. And that's what he sent them off to do. We are here today because they took him seriously. The church in Malvern is here today because we take him seriously. And now we're going to leave this room and we're going to be the church and we're going to move into this community with a plan to see lives connected with God eternally through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see disciples being made who will then go on to make more disciples, who will then go on to make more disciples. Churches starting churches that start churches. Disciples making disciples that make disciples. And I promise you this, we do it better together. When I twist my life with your life and you twist yours with mine, when you twist your life with the person beside you and behind you and in front of you, we do it better. And even if every other church in all of Arkansas were to decide, oh, we're just going to camp, we're going to keep our armor, we're going to keep it shiny, we're going to keep it polished, and we're going to sit under the pomegranate tree and wait for the time to be right. Even if every other church in our nation were to decide to do that, I tell you this, we at Stuttgart Harvest Church, we cannot sleep in. And we cannot continue sleeping. We have to every single day wake up and get out of bed and be a part of what God wants to happen on this earth. And he chooses to allow us to be a part. And I promise you this, Every single person in this room and listening online, I promise you this. God wants to change the world around you through you. I promise you that. Through your life. 
And I know this, we are better together. While everyone else slept, Jonathan woke up and he decided that he needed to make a difference in his world that day, that moment. And so he joined forces, twisted his life together, his armor bearer, and he whispered to his armor bearer, come on, let's go. And I believe that God is whispering to your heart right now, and your heart, and your heart, and your heart, he's whispering, come on, let's go. What are you waiting for? Let's go. And he wants us to get out there together. You see, the wrong voice is going to shock us with a disappointing forfeit, but the right voice is going to strengthen us with a come-from-behind upset. And that's what we find happening in the New Covenant with the Apostle Paul, who is also named Saul. Saul, the Apostle Paul, twisted his life together with Silas, twisted his life together with Timothy and Luke and others, and now we're back to where we started from this morning. A come-from-behind underdog victory when the world was against this group of men, when the government was against them, when the culture was against them. They traveled from town to town starting churches because that's where the voice of God sent them. And they came to this town, Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. I read it again. I want to read it for you again. Verse 2, as Paul, as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue service. For three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about, he is the Messiah. And here's what happens. We're told this. Luke goes on to write and tell us that in that group of people who were at the... the uh, at the synagogue that day, many of those men believed and started following Jesus right there at that moment, and they became a part of that church in Thessalonica. And Luke describes how not just those Jewish men, but many Greek men believed as well. And then he goes on to say, not just Greek men, but many prominent women in the area believed as well. That's what happened. And then we're told in verse 5, the people in the town were not happy about it. It says, but the, the uh, other Jews that were around that were not following Jesus, they became jealous. And they brought together some scoundrels, some scumbags from the marketplace. And they formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. So they're running through the city, tearing things up and they're tearing through the city. And they began attacking uh, this house where a guy named Jason lived and probably part of the church in Thessalonica began meeting there. And they thought that they were going to find Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and all that team there because they wanted to bring them out of that house and take them to the public assembly where they probably wanted to stone them and kill them all. 
Here's what Luke writes in verse 6. But when they did not find them in Jason's house, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, in other words, some of the people who were part of the church, they dragged them before the city officials shouting, These men! These men who have turned the world upside down, they've come here too. And here's my challenge to you. Stuttgart Harvest Church, let's get out there and let's turn the world upside down together. As we love the people that Jesus loved. Who did he love? Everyone. As we live like Jesus lived. How did he live? By serving. And as we leave what Jesus left, what did he leave? A healthy, growing, multiplying church of changed lives. And more changed lives. And more changed lives. And everything that we've talked about today comes down to this. You say, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you the next step to move from these rows into a small group. That's the first next step. Would you move from these rows? Keep coming back next Sunday. But we want you to be a part of a small group. Will you move from here into a small group? From the rows into a circle. And then will you move from the circle together out there and begin loving like Jesus loved and living like Jesus lived and leaving what Jesus left? Let's pray. God, what an amazing example in Paul. Not because he was so great, but God, because you are so great. What an amazing example we have in Paul. Thank you for Paul and Silas and those men who went into that world that they lived and they turned the world upside down because they were following you and they were loving the way you love, the same people you love, and they were living the way you lived, which they served. And they were leaving what you left. And that is a wake of changed lives. Who would go on to change lives? Who would go on to change lives? And my God, we call that your church. And for that, we are ever eternally grateful. Jesus, we ask that you make it so in our lives. And in your name we pray. Amen.